Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the afternoon here on AusBiz Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Great to have your company for the next hour on a program we've dubbed The Call, 10 Stocks Picked by You. I put them to two experts for their opinion. And uh, great to have on with us today, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool and Mark Morland from Team Invest. Good afternoon, gents. Good to have you aboard. Gosh, you get good, to, good to have you back. Yeah, no, it's good to be back and certainly getting stuck into a bit, fair bit to talk about, isn't there? We've got uh, going on. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a, a ripping list of uh, stocks that you've asked us to take a look at today, including for those in um, in the resources area, Woodside. We're taking a look at Ordinate as well after a bit of a pullback there. AGL, so a bit of an energy bent. And uh, some media with Sever West Media and City Chic as well from the retailers. So uh, a bit to get through, but stock of the day. Uh, thought we'd take a look at Redbubble <clears throat> out this morning with the business update. Uh, vastly different to JB Hi-Fi's, which was uh, a cracking uh, earnings update that's been analysed a fair bit here uh, by the analysts here on Ausbiz earlier in the session. But uh, Redbubble, not so good. Profit sliding 25% in the first half of this financial year. The retailer saying revenue was hit by heightened competition and stronger cyclical numbers from the previous year when there was a, an uptick in face mask sales. So by the comparisons. Um, you This morning, truly matching its uh, namesake uh, by namesake by being in the red. Um, and uh, that's a, a pretty horrendous day. Red bubble was um, at one stage around $5. Um, Scott, uh, what do you think of the red bubble trading update and the stock at these levels? Yeah, Kosh, yeah, as you say, all red, no bubble, unfortunately, today for red bubble. Yeah. You can use that one later. Um, it's, <laughs> a, it's a really fascinating business. But and I think there's, there's some operational challenge there and there's some cyclical reality they're right to highlight the fact that they're comparing versus a previous period where frankly we know that people were more locked down around the world they were less likely to be out in the shops now the last four weeks have been different but of course we're not just looking at that period we're looking at their entire half so i think it's i think it's worth pointing out the fact that it is probable that cycling on some rough numbers or some great numbers but rough in terms of the comparison last year is true the challenge for these guys is they're trying to build a marketplace that people either go to because they know the brand or because they find it via search. And those are really reasonable things to try and do. eBay made it, Amazon made it, Google made it, um, own shares in the latter two for the record. But if you're trying to create and be a marketplace, you've got to be number one. You've got to get people going there and you've got to get them going there in an inexpensive way. If you own Etsy or other, another dozen marketplaces who are trying to do something similar, they're all slightly different, but something similar, you're going to say, well, 
I, I'm going to I'm going to bid for those search engine terms. I'm going to make sure I'm number one on the ads rather than number two. I'm going to do better prices for sellers. I'm going to make it more attractive for consumers to come in. This is retail 101. This is the online equivalent of my Westfield versus your Stockland or your AMP versus versus something else. This is absolutely at the mm. core of retail. Yeah, it, it is an online mall. That's mm. kind of the idea. Remember when eBay was described that way, it was kind of a new concept. Redbubble aren't at the moment managing to get enough people to come through their virtual doors. And they either haven't been able to win those wars on pricing when it comes to search engine optimization and search engine marketing, or they're not able to do it profitably. And this is a really important point for Redbubble because this is not an unprofitable business. This is not a business that is you know, just turned up. It's a company that is trying to convince itself and its customers, suppliers and investors that it's going to be the marketplace destination, or at least one of the major ones, of the next 10 or 15 years. And it's not doing a very good job of doing that right now. Mm -hmm. I like the promise of the company. I like the business model. I like the structure. It is a really capital light business because it has no inventory, it has no tenants. It literally is just providing that marketplace. But that also means it's easy to compete with until you create that brand that becomes the go-to mm -hmm. destination. I, I want to like it with a fall of 25%. Not yes. Ordinarily, that should you know kind of grab my attention and say, let's look at that. Maybe now is now the time to buy it. But with both marketplace and volume of sales falling by double-digit percentages, 14 18% respectively, I think the numbers are, um, it's a really, really tough one to say that this will be a bounce-back story. It's very hard to know. It's From an outsider's perspective, even at the company, they're saying, well, it's kind of competition. Hmm. You would say, well, why haven't you done something about that? And my again, my answer is likely it's too expensive or it's too hard or they're doing their best. They just can't quite crack it. It's, it doesn't it doesn't give you enough faith as an investor in my mind to be buying yep. the shares. So, yeah, the fall's tempting, but I think I'd leave it on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. And look at that seven dollars a year ago, as you say, down 25 yeah, percent just this morning. Uh, it's a yeah. big fall from grace. Uh, Mark, what do you think of Redbubble? <clears throat> um, yeah, no, I agree with all that. I think the. The other problem Redbubble's got is they're they're actually matching up art, uh, so for artists with consumers, and they basically print whatever they're buying and so on and supply it. So that, that, the model's quite appealing, but there are lots of players in this space, and there's plenty of them in the US doing the same thing. And as Scott said, unless they can become the go-to place for this and get recognised for it and win all the media wars and so on, they can't survive. And they only had, uh, the, their 21 year was their first year they made a profit, which actually looked quite encouraging at that point because their sales went up from 416 million to 675 million and they made a $31 million profit. That's the first profit they made since they listed. So uh, that was encouraging. And now this latest report, of course, unfortunately, they've lost that momentum and going into reverse now. So from our point of view at Team Invest, we want to see a minimum of four years and we prefer six years of good history. So they had one yep. good year. They had one year of good history. And now they've, they've now that, that's sort of been kiboshed. So there's no way I could put any probable, probabilistic, probabilistic, probabilistic uh, <laughs> price on this <laughs> to be able to say that it would be an investment. So I think it really would be a speculation of saying, you know, do you think they're, they're going to get it right and go forward? I yeah. mean, the other thing, too, is the NFTs, you know, the non-fungible tokens are a massive growth area in art and so on where people are selling um, you know, shares in pictures and digital yeah. art and so on. That's a massive yeah. growth here. There's no mention of that in their business models or anything. And I sort of wonder whether they're a bit old hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, new chief executive hasn't been in there too long either with um, with the management. All right, let's move on to uh, the stocks that you've sent in for us to uh, to put to the expert panel. And uh, Jess wants a view, Scott, on Baby Bunting, Australia's largest specialty retailer of maternity 
and baby goods. Uh, quarter the market as uh, grandfather of eight with two <laughs> under, under three months and shopping a lot at baby bunting. Uh, they seem to be pretty full every time I go in and I can't believe the, the price of prams. Holy hell, you pay two and a half grand for a pram. Mm-hmm. You talk about, uh, talk about wedding premiums, mate. Baby premiums are very, very, very close to wedding premiums, can I tell yep. you? And it's the case, right? We're all, we're all, you know, a lot of us are cashed up or, or our uncles, parents, grandparents, and we want to get yep. the best for the kid or we want to do the right thing by the parents. So what do we do? You go, well, once I buy the $500 pram or the $2,000 pram, I guess I should buy the good one because it must be better. Um, it's a really tempting thing to go and do as, as with weddings. Uh, and it's a very lucrative business for baby bunting who have been doing an extraordinary job of growing sales and earnings. Um, their, their sales are up something like almost double in the last six, seven years as listed company. And profit's gone from seven cents a share to 17 cents a share over that same period of time in a really steady growth phase. It's a, it's a really attractive business. They've done a wonderful job growing sales. As you say, mate, they are the category killer. They are everywhere. Yeah. And I, from my own experience, even going back a decade, um, looking for baby stuff, what do you do? Well, I guess baby bunting, right? Because they've probably got everything. They're big. They've got the warehouse category killer idea. And it's not a new idea. Um, you know, Harvey Norman did it in the 1970s and plenty have done it since. Rebel Sport have done it since. Super Cheap Auto. Um, the category killer concept is really, really common. It's hard to do, but if you do it really well, you do tend to sweep all before you. So the operation of the business is, is I think, second to none. It's unquestionably great. The challenge for us now is to work out, okay, we know it's, well, I believe, Mark would disagree, I believe it's a high quality business with, uh, with good margins as you've already talked about, uh, a captive market, a captive audience. Yes, others can try and compete with it. Remember, Toys R Us tried to do, I think they did Babies yes. R Us from memory. Yep. Um, not only did Toys R Us fail, but so did the baby business. So, you know, it seems to be a pretty defensible, pretty high quality, well-growing business. There's a but, there's two buts, they're related. The first is, Will they continue to grow for a, a, a future period of time? Because if you're a category killer, like Harvey Norman back in the day, there was one store, then there was two, then there was five, then there was 100. And all of a sudden you get to a point where you can't add that many new sites in a given year. And so your rate of growth must slow because each new store is a smaller fraction of what you already have. When you've got one, you double it to two. When you've got two, you add 50% to three. When you've got 100, you're adding 1%. When you've got 150, yeah. you're adding less. Now, baby hunting aren't at that level yet in terms of sheer size. But people will travel for babies and they're not really in the market that long. So I think I probably went a 15 minute drive to get my stuff. There was probably other shops I passed. But how many more are they going to be able to fill into the interim spaces? Uh, and yes, there is some room for some growth. They're also trading on a P of about 38 times according to my numbers. And so you've got a business with an unknown terminal growth size, probably not all that much bigger in terms of stores than it is today, at least per year. Like maybe in 15 years, they've doubled the store count, but on an annual basis, that's still really small. Um, and a P of 38 that says, you guys better grow and you better grow quickly and you better grow by a lot. I want to like the business. I do like the business. I don't like the shares at 38 times yeah. earnings. Would happily buy them at a cheaper price. It's one of the better defensive retailers, I think, in the country. Um, but I just I don't see the opportunity at the current price, current market cap, given the realities of the, the it's a very small niche market, super loyal, super busy when they're there. Two years later, I haven't been back to baby hunting in eight years at least. Um, I probably will never go there again unless for the grandkids. So uh, I just want it just too expensive at 38 times. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was there uh, recently because we have a tradition where we buy the first pram for our nice. kids. So I was buying a nice. pram and uh, the salesperson was giving me the full range and got up to the two and a half thousand dollars. I went, no, no, sort of, well, well. I'll, come, I'll come back to a grand. And they looked me in the eye and said, well, if you want to compromise on safety, 
I said, don't give me that. Don't give me that. It's a prayer. That's good selling. That's yeah, good selling. Exactly. So, saw a, grandpa, a grandparent from 100 totally. metres away. Uh, Absolutely. Mark, your view on Baby Vandy? Yeah, it's, it's interesting with the prices. The, they, they should do a De Beers. Remember, De Beers did that famous campaign where they positioned that, that a, a would-be uh, husband or you know, a suitor should spend, I think it was two months of his salary, was the appropriate price to pay for a diamond. And what they what the baby bunting need to do is say, what sort of car do you drive? Yeah. So you're driving the Merc or a Porsche. You, you should have the Merc or the Porsche uh, baby. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because wouldn't you want your grandchildren or your child to have the, the same safety and prestige you have? Anyway, oh, yeah. apart from all that. I'm not giving any more free marketing advice. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it passes um, uh, all of our filters. It's, it's, it is a quality company. I concur with everything uh, that Scott said, so I won't repeat it. Um, however, the, the price is the problem, and it's a really big problem because the 38 PE that uh, Scott mentioned is about uh, three, maybe four times higher than comparable, comparable retailers. And when uh, I say comparable uh, retailers, I'm thinking JB Hi-Fi, yeah. and JB Hi-Fi yeah. is on a PE of 10, and it has slightly higher earnings growth than Baby Bunting. So okay. JB Hi-Fi is growing its earnings at 20%. Baby Bunting is growing them at 18. Great, nothing wrong with that. It's just way, way overpriced. And what that does is it hits your returns. So let's assume and be generous here that they haven't actually bought a lot of sales forward through COVID like most retailers have, and that they're going to be able to continue growing. So without even putting those questions in, then we're showing them on a margin of safety returning 6% a year, which is okay. Right. Uh, whereas on JB Hi-Fi, 16%. Okay. So now I, I think JB Hi-Fi's business to me is equally as resilient as Baby Bunning would ever be. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for me, Baby Bunning is definitely a good company, but way, way too expensive. And yeah. I'll, I'll buy JB okay. Hi-Fi. All right. Okay, Jess, thank you for that suggestion. Uh, Mark, Trevor wants a view on Woodside, the uh, the big oil and gas producer, um, just um, according to Motley Fool, you um, Scott, you, you did a report on Santos and Woodside only recently outperforming the market because of the oil price. Um, um, what do you think, Mark? Can it be sustained? Uh, obviously, from a team invest perspective, we're, yeah, this is a, we're just about an impossible company for us to look at. And um, we yeah. did look at it years yeah. ago and we had the CEO in and we did a lot of work on it. But there's, it's actually quite complex and it's a global business and it's got very, uh, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Now, if you look at it, from the oil argument, I agree with you. I think the, 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 the chance of them doing better over the next few years is, is high, but I couldn't say whether you'd, you would buy it at the current price because if you actually look at their return on equity on the, uh, in 2021, it took a massive dive and then they, they basically went into a, I think pretty well into a loss situation and then they've jumped back up. But if you look at it over 10 years, it's, it's flat to slightly down. You know, they're, they're earning. So there's no historical basis for me to be able to say, well, if I buy it at a given price now, is there a consistent earnings growth like we just saw in Baby Buntings uh, where, where your earnings are growing? So there's a basis to be able to pay a, either a dividend or you get a capital growth on the shares as the company's getting bigger. So it's just way too hard for me. So I really don't have an opinion on it. Right. Okay. Scott, what do you think? Um, and, yeah. and particularly <sighs> since it's picked up its... You know, BHP's are, um, um, oil interests as well. Does that make it more attractive? 
It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because that, that kind of muddies all, any of the financial historicals as well for, for exactly the same yeah. reason that it adds scale to the business. It adds different parts of operations, mostly businesses that already had joint ventures in, to be fair. So it already knows a lot of those businesses, but it makes it a harder business to draw, draw a line from historically. All of that said, Mark's point is still remains right. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Um, you know, the oil price will be the major determinant of future profitability. And so you've got to have that as part of your calculus. And if anyone can do that with any sort of accuracy for any length of time, uh, then I'd be happy to, uh, to to buy them a drink and let them tell me how, because I don't know how that's reasonably possible. I, I did some numbers, mate, on on the oil price over the best part of a century. And I, it, it was last year sometime, so the numbers have changed and whatever. But it turns out that something like in real terms, despite the amount of oil being taken out of the ground, absolutely skyrocketing thousands of times volume in terms of, you know, obviously from when the first discoveries were made to the deep, offshore drilling rigs of today, um, the real price of oil, something like only doubled or maybe tripled in real terms over that century, despite that absolute boom in usage. Now, um, again, those are rough numbers, so don't, don't spare, me the, spare me the hate mail. Uh, but you know, the, the concern there is that volume doesn't necessarily in and of itself deliver profitability or even price sustainability. And in fact, it might be the reverse, right? The more you bring to the market, the more that supply pushes down the price, which is what it's supposed to do. Uh, I, if you want to buy wood, so you've got to buy it on the basis that I think the oil price will be either at the same level or higher and or volumes will be at the same level or higher over some interminable future period of time. It's just too hard to do. They're smart people at Woodside. I have no doubt they're doing their absolute level best to operationally execute as well as they possibly can. Uh, but if you can tell me what the oil price is going to be, as I said, month by month for the next five years, good luck. You can't do it. Even in, even in five years' time, is it going to be higher? Maybe. Who knows? Um, and I'm being deliberately vague because no one literally does know. Yeah. And if the oil price halves between now and 2027, then we're going to be seeing a loser almost certainly no matter what happens, mm. uh, despite no matter what they do, because you just simply can't make enough money. Now, if it doesn't halve, then a very different story. But particularly in this case, commodities are difficult in general. Add OPEC on top of that, who at the <laughs> stroke of a pen control the volumes of much of the world's oil supply. That's leaving aside the, the non-traditional oil supplies like oil sands and fracking and that kind of stuff. And then try to work out what is that going to do to the price and what OPEC may or may not do. Just way too many moving parts, way too hard to predict. Um, again, operationally, love them. They're doing a great job. Financially, investment-wise, I can't recommend investment. Yep. Okay. Um, Marley wants a view, Scott, on Stockland, the, uh, the big property group. Of course, you see Stockland shopping centres around the place, but... They're also into logistics, residential communities, uh, over 50s, um, uh, quite a broad portfolio, isn't it? It is, and, and a pretty good portfolio, generally speaking. Um, it, the challenge on property recently has been the COVID <coughs> impact. And again, we're not saying anything we don't, we don't know. We've been talking about this for now, literally almost exactly two years, which is scary in itself. What happens post-COVID is the big open question for many people. If you think about the property portfolio of Stockland, whether it be the impact on some of their um, commercial business, the impact on some of their retail business, do people shop more or less at the suburban shopping centre or the regional shopping centre, which is probably my biggest concern. Are the houses in the right places? Do people still want to live there? Are there going to be uh, ongoing demand for those, particularly with, with uh, population currently flagging because immigration has been halted? Those are the really, really big open questions. And I don't ask them as rhetorical questions with obvious answers because there aren't any. In theory, immigration restarting should add to the demand for new residential construction. Residential, so regional shopping centres, the local suburban ones are going to be fine in my view because you're probably going to go to your local Woolies, grab a coffee, come home. You're probably going to go to your big Westfield for the day out. 
do you go to your regional shop anymore or do you jump online and do some of that? They're they're really difficult questions to answer. Stockland is literally in the eye of what's close enough to a perfect storm. The good news for Stockland, I checked the numbers before we came on, they've done a really, really nice job of growing earnings through the pandemic, which is is to their absolute credit. So that diversification you talked about, the the management, really, really good, really well done. So, So as an operational business, again, like Woodside, really, really good. 12 times earnings, not super expensive either, and a yield of 6.1%, pretty good numbers too. So if you want to find reasons to like Stockland, there are plenty out there. I can't see a property company, almost by definition, outperforming the market over the long period of time without the use of meaningful leverage. And the simple reality is that if you own a property business, you get development profits and you get the increase in the value of the assets you hold, are those likely to exceed the average return from shares? Has it been in the past over the long period, long term? I don't expect it to be the case over the long term from here. So if I'm building a, a, a small or medium-sized portfolio of companies that I'm buying to beat an ETF because I want to beat the market by definition, otherwise I buy the ETF, yep. I can't find room for Stockland. If I want okay. an income portfolio, I think Stockland makes a, a nice addition in a diversified portfolio with its own internal diversification as well. Okay, so if you're after... After an income payout, maybe look at it. But that would be the I only reason right. you do it. Uh, Mark, yeah. what do you think of Stockholm? Uh Yeah, I generally agree with that. It's actually in the bottom quartile of its PE range at the moment. So oh. uh, it, it actually has a fairly tight range, a lot more than some companies. So 12.6 times is the bottom quartile, 15.4 is up to three quarters, and above that is in the red, if you like. So it's actually, it, it has a fairly tight trading range anyway. But it, even though it's in the green, we would call it, it's still showing a return of 7.6 on our default measures. That's not the conservative ones. The conservative ones are showing 3.6 um, per year for the next five years, which doesn't cut it because that would be argu- arguably less than what you would get as a, from an in- index fund. Their earnings over the decade have grown on average 0.1% per year. So they've, they've actually been below inflation, over the, which is not good because they, you need earnings growth to be at least as good as inflation so you're not going backwards. But their sales growth has grown about 5% with uh, high stability. I agree with everything that Scott said that it, it's, still, it's a well-run company and there's nothing wrong with it. We generally avoid REITs and so on because there's another aspect to them as well which works both ways where they increase their profits by revaluing properties and that flows through to the PL. and of course if we do have some readjustments in the property market over the next five years which i think is inevitable i don't know what they'll be but certain right. areas are going to suffer suffer and if the valuations go down the rents go down the cap rates go down and then that'll come through as a loss into their PL. so they, they have the potential to get serious harm done to them with changes post coronavirus, which I'm not speculating what they'll be, other right. than it's a significant right. risk. So it's not, um, for me, if you want to get a 10% return on a margin of safety, on our numbers, you wouldn't want to pay more than $3.12 per share, is, and it's no. currently 4.22. Yeah, yeah, so that's a long way to go. Um, Brooke wants a, a view, Mark, on, uh, on Suncorp Group, the big Queensland base financial services group, not just in uh, general insurance, but uh, but banking and also wealth management as well? Yeah, this is a pretty mediocre company. I mean, it, you know, it's obviously been around for a long time. It's It sort of never appears on our radar. And the reason is its return on equity is, is being consistently below our minimum and return on capital is worse. And it also has a very high debt level. Now, admittedly, they're, they're a bit of a conglomerate because they've got banking and they've got insurance and they've got wealth management. There's a lot of moving parts in this business as well, which which I, I generally don't uh, like. It is in the bottom quartile of its PE range at the moment on 12, 
but it's still because it's pretty mediocre and its earnings have been negative three percent per year over the last six years. That's the average. Mm. Totally, in other words, flat or slight with a slight bias to negative is hardly mm. inspiring. Um, and then we've got it returning six point nine per year, so similar to Stockland, um, probably a little bit less um, structural risk, I would think, for them than Stockland. But who knows? Uh, and then minus one on a margin of safety, which is just, it's just a mediocre company. It just, it just wouldn't warrant our effort. Mm. Okay. Um, Scott, what do you see of Suncorp? And there's been a view on financials and general insurance companies would be beneficiaries of any interest rate rises. If we go into that environment, does that give it a boost at all? I think it does actually cost you. And this is one of the, it was a great point you raised because it's one of the possible value creators moving out. Now, I will say for what it's worth, I recommended shares of computer share about seven years ago when I was looking for the interest rates to increase at some point. Uh, and seven years later, they haven't. So <laughs> maybe 2022 is my year on that one, although we've uh, got rid of it since. So yeah, yes, but it should. There's no law to say that it has to by definition because in a competitive market in theory, all the business would operate on on some sort of sustainable margins and banking for all of the grief that we give it around the margins and everything else is not making super profits reasonably on on their capital large very, very large dollar amounts which seem obscene uh, but the amount of capital they have and the, the money the money they make the returns on investment as as mark already mentioned in equity is is those kind of numbers um and so it's, it's worth just thinking about you know whether there is future opportunity there should be because zero is a, a relative lower bound particularly when it comes to the interest they're paying for the cost of the of the debt they're buying and what they're paying people like depositors to actually have some of that as, as available ammunition to, to lend or to borrow out to, to lend out to their to their customers. So yes, rising rates should be good. It should be good for insurance as well because they're taking money now, they're giving it back later. They can earn some sort of return on that. And again, in theory, uh, particularly on cash and maybe even on bonds, if if bond uh, prices fall, yields increase, they should be able to make some more money there. So yes, that should be good tailwinds for those businesses. I don't just I can't disagree with Mark in terms of the the, the explanation of this business as, as relatively mediocre. For all of the concentration in Australian banking, for all of the frankly concentration in insurance as well, there aren't that many large insurers, lots of brands, not many companies involved. The pricing seems to be pretty right as a consumer. Um, again, we don't like insurance companies making money either. But if you look at the profits of all of them across the board and say none of them are making a lot of money, we're, we're probably doing okay as 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 a society, as consumers. We're getting reasonable prices for our banking products getting reasonable prices for our insurance products. As a consumer, I love that. As an investor, I'm saying, well, hang on, if there's no pricing power there, if there's no you know, secret source, if they're not doing something different or particularly special, it's very hard to recommend an investment in Suncorp. It doesn't help also that it's largely regionally uh, concentrated as well, so you're kind of taking that extra risk. Relative to, say, a Westpac, which is 13 times earnings, I've got Suncorp at 14 times, so Westpac's right. actually arguably wow. cheaper. Now, again, you can argue about the, the Westpac challenges and problems as well, and they've had some. Uh, but if you look at that and say, do I really want to buy Suncorp? I don't see a lot of reason to do it. Again, if I owned it, I probably wouldn't sell. It's a 5.4% yield, which is very nice. If you hold it for a while, you might have made some money on it. So maybe there's some capital gains there as well. I wouldn't be running away. I would say, as I generally do, if your portfolio is chock full of financials, that's not diversification. Having three banks and two insurers is not diversification. Uh, yeah. It's concentration. So just think about that. But other than that, I, I see no reason to add Suncorp to your portfolio if you don't already own it. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that, Brooke. Now, both Gavin and Raymond Scott, one of you on Ordinate. Uh, Raymond's saying, um, uh, I've been buying the stock on the way down since $10. I believe in the long-term story, and I know the short to medium-term headwinds with semiconductor shortages. Have I missed something? 
or is the fall in the share price just the short-termism of the market? Of course, Ordnate um, is a global leader, dominates um, the um, digital audio signals where you match audio to video through its Dante system. Um, recently bought a, Bel- a Belgium-based video business, Silex Insight, as well to add to their, their product range. Uh, what do you think of Dante, Scott? Mm. You've absolutely nailed the summary. And I think it was Gavin who asked the question or Raymond asked the question. Yeah. Absolutely nailed the, the share price movement. And so this is so there's two there's two ways to answer the question. I'll answer the business question first, then we'll get back to the share price. I really like what Ordinate is trying to do. And I use trying specifically because they're not there yet. We all know what Dolby surround sound is or Dolby stereo or Dolby 5.1. Those terms are used by marketers of hardware to say, buy my stuff, it's great. It's worth yep. using. You're going to get a better quality sound. It's going to be fantastic. We go to cinema for the Dolby surround sound effect, all that stuff. The same as Intel inside, same kind of idea. Ordinate is trying to do with Dante, as you say, be that for audio and video for people who create sound. So we don't, you don't necessarily use it or know it as a consumer, but if you're buying sound equipment, you want equipment that can be used digitally, not just via the old analog. When analog is literally wire to wire to wire. A digital sound is one that comes into a computer system of sorts and then goes back out wherever you want to send it. It's super useful. It should be higher quality. You should get less loss of um, quality during that process. It should be easy to have to rewire or reconnect or replug things. It is it's the computerization of the old plug and plug. Think about the old telephone operator, mm. you know, um, answering and pull, putting the plug in the right mm. spot. That's the current, even current. Um, audio and a little bit video, but mostly audio uh, systems currently that you're using. Yeah. The the new Dante-powered ones are much better in theory. They're not there yet. And so that gets us to the, the share price question. Nothing meaningful has changed about the business. There is some COVID impact, which I'll touch on, and the semiconductor shortage. But the, the, the future of Dante and Ordinate, if they get it right, is not about the last 12 months or even the next 12 months. It is whether they become the Intel inside or the Dolby of audio equipment. If they can then the recent share price movement's not going to matter. If they can't, arguably the recent share price movement is not going to matter because it's still too expensive. This is an early stage growth company hoping to dominate its niche. If it can do that, it's worth much more than today's price. If it can't, it's probably worth much less than today's price. And so, um, again, I think it was Gavin, is right to say, is it just the short-term measure of the market? Yes. Don't take too much solace, though, in that that must have been the market's wrong in the short term because the market might have been wrong before and now they're right. Well, they might have been wrong both times. So it's important not to anchor for our own kind of psychological benefit and say, yep. oh, I was just short-termism, don't worry about it. Equally, I wouldn't worry and say the share price falling, therefore it's a problem either. Because it, again, it's, it's the story that he mentions, if this does deliver on what it wants to try and do, what it's trying to do currently, then it's much more valuable than today's share price and today's market cap. And any volatility in the meantime is not going to speak to the long-term value creation. So mm-hmm. yes, with any pre-profit company like Ordinate is, any share price movement is just hopefully intelligent speculation, but speculation on the eventual state of the business. And so you should never, in my view, unless you see a big announcement that does really matter, put too much store in share price movements of any company, right. but particularly those that don't have any current revenues, also don't have any current profits, because they're really not telling you the story of what the business momentum looks like, but rather simply how investors are feeling about how long they want to wait for their returns to come. Okay. All right. So yes or no? I'd buy it. I think if you, if you have an appetite for it and you like the story, as our questioners have, have said, um, then there's no reason not to like okay. it. If, the, if they can make this work, and I think they will, but yep. with a big amount of risk, like that's dollops of yep. risk, but I think they can make it work, yes. Okay. All right. Gaurav Sodhi from Intelligent Investor is probably their, is the cheerleader 
for ordinary. <laughs> he, he, he has it, uh, chose it as his stock that could change your life. Um, wow, okay. So That's he's a, a massive fan of it. Uh, Mark, nice. are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's definitely not going to change my life. <laughs> so. No, no, no. I had a feeling you'd say that. That's why I, I, I posed it so bluntly. The thing is, if you look at COVID and what's been happening with uh, audio and digital and video, it's, it's been a, in a massive boom over the last couple of years. So they don't seem, that doesn't seem to be reflected in their growth. They've only got $33 million worth of, of sales. And then, yeah. and they lost three million last year on on that yeah. on those thirty three million. So c- cinemas apparently and outdoor concerts uh, really hit them hard because that's a yeah. big part yeah. of their market. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, okay. Um, but if you look at their growth for the three years, going back to 19, 20, 21, it's only about ten percent a year. So that that is not demonstrating that they are going to be an Intel inside type. That's 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 very mediocre growth. And what you've got to remember, this company's got a market cap of 660 million, and on 33 million in revenue is neatly 20 times. So the, the company's currently value, valued at eight dollars at 20 times revenue. So there is a massive amount of assumed growth there just to get it to some sort of value. Uh, and they've only ever made a small profit in two years, which was in 18 and 19. They made a couple of cents. Um, so it's to me, it's a it's just a speculative punt. That's all it is. Even yeah. if you even if you like the story. Okay. All right, let's recap the first uh, five stock stock of the day, uh, Redbubble, after its uh, uh, trading update today. A note from Scott, uh, both Scott and Mark. Baby bunting, uh, similar, just too expensive at the moment. Uh, Woodside, a no from both. Scotland, a no, uh, Stockland, a no from both. But Scott was saying if you're an income investor and that's where you want to skew your portfolio, then Stockland is worth having a look at for uh, for income. Uh, similar with Suncorp as well. Uh, a no from both of them, uh, but Scott pointing out that their, uh, uh, their dividend return, their yield, is pretty good for income investors. And Ordinate, um, if you uh, see it, its growth potential is a yes from Scott, but a no from Mark. All right, let's go on to our second five stocks. What a... We're going to be covering AGL, City Chic, Seven West Media, Janison Education, and Race Oncology in the uh, the next thirty minutes. Uh, Scott, another energy stock. Um, Priya wants a view on on AGL. It's another energy stock. Gosh, we're in a very different place. Uh, we know that website is kind of you know drilling uh, oil and gas. AGL largely in the creation of energy, the generation of energy and the distribution and selling of it. So you're a little bit further down the supply chain, but definitely still in that space. I I want to start with something positive, Koshi. I can't find much to start with with AGL. I don't know two more difficult areas of business to be in right now than energy generation and energy retailing. Uh, yeah. We know that at the generation level, it is massively capital intensive. We know there's been long-term ongoing, I'll say arguments quite honestly, between the different factions of different views of policy and environment and other things as to what we should be generating energy with, what subsidies should be provided, what the future might look like. And even just very simply, is there enough regulatory certainty for anybody to put money into any energy generation right now? And for the most part, the answer is no, or at least not at scale. And so if you're trying to take a punt on energy generation, the number of complex questions you need to try and answer for yourself even to work out what source of energy, let alone which power stations or which uh, wind farms or, or wave stations, and then which company owns them and can make money from them, that is just miles and miles and miles away from an easy part. 
if you look at the distribution side, you've got the same problem. It should be even worse if, you, if that's possible because is there anything more commoditized than retail electricity? Mm -hmm. uh, you literally, you, 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 know, you turn the switch on, you, your, your device doesn't care what generator or sorry, what retailer provides it to you. And the reality is even the retailer that provides it, you really, you've got that white labeled kind of, you know, if I buy AGL energy, my provider here is Endeavor Energy, so I'm buying Endeavor Energy from AGL. And so the whole thing is just a little bit crazy. Um, what it means though, at the end of the day, is if everyone's selling the same commoditized product, if you can do it with a flick of a switch, if you can leave a contract, which you almost certainly can for most, if not all providers, literally on day in, day out, if pricing remains competitive and fluctuating, you're relying to make any excess profits on simply people's loyalty. And AGL mm -hmm. has some. The Australian gas light company is very, very old. I want to say more than a century old. I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so it's, you know, there is some brand loyalty there, some brand value there, which is better than nothing. But I don't know how you end up with surplus returns above the cost of capital, let alone, as we've already talked about, the market's likely future return annually over yeah. an extended period of time. I just, I, honestly, I don't know what algebra you'd have to do to make that work at any degree of probability. Is it possible? Of course, because any, any number of scenarios can come to pass. But is it probable based on the outlook for any of those two, either of those two sectors? I just don't see that it is. Mm. If I own the shares, mate, frankly, I'd, I'd sell them and I'd buy something else. I don't expect okay. AGL to be a market beater. All right. Uh, Mark, what do you think of AGL? I, I saw Credit Suisse put out uh, a report a short time ago. Um, they've got a price target of 850 on AGL, but based on sort of the, the revaluation of coal and natural gas, which their global prices have risen. Yeah, well, I, I concur with everything Scott said. And I think I'll add a couple of things. Uh, he meant, Scott mentioned that this is an absolute commodity business, but it's a commodity business that has massive regulatory impact. So it's not just about well, it's regulatory, <laughs> regulatory certainty, but it's actually worse than that because we now have with the uh, whole carbon zero approach and what's now what's demonised like coal and you can't do this, you can't do that. Even the banks are being pressured not to lend money on development. So it's, mm. it's a capital intensive industry where you can't raise capital on, on most things. <laughs> so it's a, it's a shocker, absolute shocker. I wouldn't want to be running this company. And the other thing, if you look at the share price, when you talk about share prices, back in 2000 uh, 17, it was $28.47. 2020, wow. it was $26, $23 in 19, 21, 17, now seven. So if you'd owned it over that period, you've lost 70% plus uh, of your money. Now, you could argue, well, obviously we can't live without energy and energy runs the economy, so they're not going to go away. And that's true. And they may bounce back from where they are because that's a share price they've never been. That Gee, that's an ugly graph. <laughs> But, but that's not an investment for me. That's, that's really what you're really doing is they're saying, oh, well, you know, it's got, to, it's got to bounce back and I might double my money. And you might, but it's not an investment. It's a no. speculation. Yep. Yep. Really good point. All right. Uh, back to retail now. And uh, uh, Mark Harrison wants a view on City Chic. We've covered Redbubble today, uh, Baby Bunting. We've talked about JB Hi-Fi. Now City Chic, um, different sort of sector in the in plus-size women's apparel stores throughout Australia and New Zealand has been a bit of a market darling, has it? Yeah. Are you talking to me? Yep. Good. <laughs> That's right. So it has. Um, it's on a 44 PE, which in retail terms, and we like retail. Retail has yeah. been very, very good for our members You know, over the last few years. We've done so well on retail, particularly since COVID. Um, and the retail, interestingly with retail generally, is the PEs are low. You know, they're mm. sub 15s, 15s at the high end. Yeah. But sitting, and this is sitting 40. 44. Yeah, wow. which is massive. 
And, you know, they've got good growth, but okay, so have all these other retailers. So their growth on EPS over six years has jumped 143%. But the reason is it was down at zero just about at uh, 2017. It was negative, actually negative two cents and 17. So you're looking at five, four years. So four years it's jumped up. And this is a, a company that specialises in um, uh, uh, clothes and so on for the plus women's size, I think it's mm. called. Is that the politically correct way? Yep, plus size women's apparel. Yep. <laughs> plus size, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, that's obviously got to be a good market. But I just look at it from a fundamental point of view and say, okay, well, um, you know, do it, and I look at sales and sales have actually gone down from 17. So the sales growth hasn't been there. It's growing slowly since 2018 and earnings have grown faster, which is nothing wrong with that. I just couldn't get my head around why you want to pay 44 times earnings for that. Um, and because of that, we're looking at minus 3% a year return um, on a margin of safety because of the, the super high PE, because our system is assuming that the PE will revert back to, I'll tell you what we think it'll be in five years, um, 26, which is still high. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's a... It's a it's a $2.70 target price from our point of view to get a 10% return on a margin of safety, which I'd want at least that. Otherwise, I would choose other retailers. Well, that's less than half the current price. Um, Scott, that's right. That's right. Um, good business, but is it overpriced? So here's the problem with City Chic. I don't think we know what the future might look like because of a really rocky past. I've got 10 years of history here, um, different 10 probably to market at least presented a different way. But uh, three of the last 10 years, they've lost money. Uh, one mm. of those years, they barely made money. Uh, and two of the years they did make money, they made less money than the year before. So you've got this really <laughs> difficult business to look at and say, either this is the new normal, this is the future, this is what things will look like moving forward. Or you say, these have been some great years, watch out for mean reversion. And that's always the case with any business, right? So I'm not trying to say this about City Chic specifically. It may be, you know, other businesses have similar stories. Can you extrapolate? Can you continue? Should you expect things to come back to normal? Now, you should be able to do a reasonably good job of that. And history should tell you if you haven't had that bouncy earnings you know, profile, you should be able to say, okay, well, they don't normally have that much volatility, so we can yeah. expect X. Or conversely, it's always like this in this industry because it's oil and gas we just talked about, for example, where prices are all over the place. Do you expect good years and bad years? City Chic is a really, really hard one. Of course, this is the old business that was at one point specialty fashion group. Before that, it was Miller's Retail. Yep. And if you've been around the markets for a while, we know those names. It really hasn't been a great track record. So is this, is this finally, where they finally got it right, this is, the, this is the future, or is this unusual? And I don't know. But at 38 times earnings, I've got to concur with Mark, there's a lot of businesses I pay 25, 30, 35 times earnings for before I even think about buying any retailer, let alone City Chic at 38 times earnings. Yep. It's, just, it's just way too high. You're expecting too much. And by the way, last year's earnings were the best by a decent margin in the last 10 years. Um, so they're not even like coming off, a, it's not like a 38 times a low level of earnings. They've done a pretty good job through COVID. They've managed to thrive and survive, which is great. And maybe COVID is the making of them for all we know. They're trying to expand internationally. Maybe that continues. Maybe there are another few legs of growth like La Visa, for example, and other retailers that's done really well. So maybe, maybe there is more to come. And if you know this company really, really well, you have a high conviction in the international growth story, you might look at that and say, no, it's easy because there'll be 10 times as many stores in 10 years. Okay, well, Maybe that gives you a P of 38 that makes some sense. But right now, given the history, you have to believe this is the new normal. I, I'm never a big fan of that idea. So yeah. I'd give it a miss and wait to see a little bit more detail or a cheaper price. And yeah, and, and the, uh, the earnings, um, uh, the PE ratio is so out of kilter with the rest of the retail yeah. market. It's, uh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Markets are, yeah. are really uh, falling for the story by the look of it. Um, Scott Archer wants a view on 7 West Media, the... Uh, 
the, the big television uh, network, recently mopped up Prime Media, the big regional TV network, which uh, they think will build a moat around it. What do you think of Seven West? Yeah, Seven's a really difficult business to, to look at right now because it's been such a difficult time for free-to-air television in general, newspapers in general. I talked about the new normal before, and, and there's an overarching question of when does traditional media plateau and then grow again? And without being too unkind about it, the Seven West Media earnings profile is exactly the wrong direction you want. It's down to the right rather than up to the right. Um, they've really struggled to get growing profits on the back of growing sales for, for many years, unfortunately. That being said, it, P is now 7.7 times. So you're also not paying a whole lot of money. And that's times the current, 7.7 times the current earnings, not that past much higher earnings. And you, you've got to as an investor look at that and say, okay, well, either I say too hard because I don't know if and when that decline stops. You say too hard because it looks cheap, but I want to see the evidence. Or you say, great opportunity, look how cheap it is. Um, it, can't care, it can't fall much further. Now, of course, things can always fall much further than you expect. They can also turn around much more quickly than you expect. And Nine Entertainment's had a particularly good time uh, in terms of that mm. turnaround for them. And you look at Seven West and say, well, hang on, some of the best minds in the business running this network, uh, including, by the way, the, the other properties and, and Prime. And you think, well, you know, is this genuinely destined for the scrap heap? Because on that trend, that's the only thing you can do. If you, if you extrapolate the trend, it goes negative and stays there. Or do they turn the business around? I'm, I've been around long enough uh, not to bet against people like Kerry Stokes. Um, so it's not a business I would desperately rush out to condemn to the, to the wreckers. Um, but it is, it is a business that does have structural challenges. Yeah. Seven times earnings. You can actually, you know, not, have, not much has to go right for that to be a, a really nice returning result for you. I'm kind of tempted to, to, to maybe want to have a bit of a play at that one, but I can't quite bring myself to. Probably a hold for me. If you hold it for a long time, you held it because you bought it 10 years ago with a brighter business in mind, then reevaluate your thesis. Don't don't buy this one because of what television networks were a decade ago. But also, I wouldn't say rush out and sell just because things look ordinary. <clears throat> Reassess from now and say, is the price cheap enough to buy? Possibly, if you have a stomach for risk and if you're prepared, this could actually fall in half again from here because these decline businesses always can. If they don't, though, and the market starts to re-rate a higher level of profitability, it could be, easily be a quick double as well. So pretty speculative. Um, wouldn't rush to sell if I bought it recently. Yeah. No, wouldn't necessarily rush to buy just yet unless you've got a big stomach for risk. Okay. I'll sound like a company man now, Mark. And, and so it, ha it has doubled in value in the last 12 months. And yeah, it's, it it's, it's cut its debt. And it's so, I suppose the other option you have is seven group holdings where you get a big stake in Seven West Media and a stake in Boral at the same time and some and Caterpillar, um, what about Caterpillar? And, and Caterpillar as well. Yeah, that's right. So I would agree with you on that one too. Now, just interestingly, um, Scott summed that up well, but if you look at the EPS growth over the last six years, it's averaged minus 21% a year. So that slope going down from high left to low right is is very consistent and the sales aren't dropping as fast they're only dropping at about seven percent a year uh, but what's interesting is the earnings kicked up a little bit in 2020 to 21 which would have given people hope of course yep. and it went from the earnings went from two cents to six cents and but the but i think if you overlook if you look at the sales they didn't change so the, the decline in sales continued so for whatever reason they eked out a bit more profit in 21 than they had but the bottom line is the trend is very clear and this is a company that's part of an industry which is being disintermediated by all the streaming videos, not to mention all the online and, and internet. And it, it's 
yeah, traditional media has been absolutely cruel. And if you look at uh, their, their market cap, it's dropped 75% over the last uh, over the last few years. And I don't think that's surprising. So if the question is, and Scott's right, is there a point in time where they get to some base where they can then start growing from? And I, I, I question whether that's going to happen because what's happening is Google and Facebook and all these guys are just sucking all the ad dollars out. And that's where they made their money. So the other side of their ledger for them is all the expenses they have to pay to get sport or uh, programming and so on. They've got to, they have to, they spend the money and then they have to sell enough advertising to pay for all the and and their running costs. I, I wouldn't go near it. I think it's a it's a once that's a doomed industry, but it's you're betting against a major trend, which is very established. All right, uh, Mitch Mark wants a view on um, Janison Education. They're um, basically a software business. Um, on e-learning, but um, uh, for schools, for um, uh, corporations, they, they've diversified a fair bit, haven't they, in, in the types of platforms that they have? Yeah, they have. They, they, what they're trying to do is um, bring in uh, digitised you know, training and tests and so on for qualifications for you know, unis yeah. or whatever. You know, yeah. for, they're doing, there's, it's a, this is an also a busy area as well. They've been going for a few years, and if I have a look at the, um, the history of it, um, I've got data back to 2.12, so I'm not sure whether they uh, were around before that or not. Um, they basically have lost money all the way through. I don't think they've ever made a profit. Oh, first year, 2012, they made uh, they had 6% return on equity. So they just lose money all the time. So and if you look at sales, is, are the sales growing? Well, they had three years where they had no sales. I don't understand that. In 2018, it was $0.13, cents, $0.13, cents, $0.10, cents, $0.13. Cents. So if you want to be generous, you call that flat. So right. they've got no sales growth and they're losing money. I don't know how why our viewers would think this is a good investment. Hmm. I really don't. There's no evidence there to say they're going to turn this into a good business. And the other thing, if you look at shares outstanding, you'll love this. They've gone from 500,000 shares in 2012 up to 228,000 in 2021. And so it's been and the, the growth like 130, 170, 209, 228, number of shares outstanding. Now, I don't know who got them. But you can you can assume I think insiders would be right. would be my guess. Right. Right. So they or they've or they've been doing capital raisings. That's the other possibility. But whichever it is, doesn't matter. As an investor, it's all bad news. So right. I don't. Their total revenue is about thirty million, and they're losing about three million a year on that. Okay, uh, Scott Janison Education. So I have, a, I have a, a half answer to Mark's question is why would you want to? And, and the answer may well be, by the way, you don't want to. And depending on the sort of investor you are, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but the, the answer would be something along the lines of the, the business. If you were going to buy a, a business, start a business, you, you'd start a business based on in theory, some revenue, your costs probably exceed your revenue for a period of time. And then eventually you make some money. Now, that's every business that starts up. Most go broke. Uh, some make a little bit of money. Some make a lot of money. And you're entitled to pick a point at which you, know, you want to invest in that. And if you do it super early, you're taking massive amounts of risk, super uncertain, lotto-type returns. If you do it super late and you pay, I will use AGL from earlier in the program, I think AGL is a, a you know, solid, substantial business, but they're not particularly attractive financials because it's now at a certain size and scale and interest dynamics don't make it attractive. Somewhere on that journey can be opportunities to buy or not buy. If you like the Janssen story, <coughs> excuse me, it is that... Um, these guys are signing contracts now, particularly with system education systems, individual schools, that will bear fruit in one, three, and five years' time. 
Now, that is a whole lot of hope, by the way. And Mark is not wrong to say, hey, show me the money before I give you mine. Uh, that's, that's completely an appropriate way to think about a business like Janison. The, the flip side might be if you looked at a, and, and pick a business, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, I don't want to use Amazon because we always do and I own it. It just gets a bit funny. But yeah, Amazon wasn't making money for a period of time. Why would I want to buy Amazon? Because I see a future where XYZ might happen. Now, I wasn't that smart. I didn't own them before they were profitable, unfortunately. Um, it took me a while to, to catch on. But that, yeah, that, that's, that's the game you would be playing if you're looking at Jamison now and saying, I think there is enough reason to believe there is a sustained level of profitability at some future point, And I want to buy now because I think I'm getting a really good price relative to that, that future I potentially see. I really like what they're doing. I think the businesses they're in, the areas they're in, the systems that they're in, and they've got to deal with the OECD should be good for business. It should be good for revenue. And in theory, at some point, good for profitability. But to Mark's point, really hard to value, really hard to understand a loss-making business and say, I think, therefore, it's going to make some money. I will say some of the team at The Fool are big fans of Janison for the reasons I've talked about. Others happy to give it a miss and, and wait a little bit longer and just wait and see. I find myself right in the middle, mate. I like the promise of the business. I like the contracts they're signing. The annual contract value moving out two and three years is actually pretty impressive numbers. Uh, so I'd be closer to buying than selling. But I'm going to sit on the fence, call this one a hold for now. Okay. Um, just because I, I, a little bit like Mark, I'd like to see a bit more money come in and, and a substantiation of the profitability before right. I put my money down on the shares. Because you've got IDP education in, in this sector as well, which is yeah. sort of uh, same, same, but different, isn't it? Basically, that's right. So Janison is largely, it, it, uh, so NAPLAN type test or the, the PISA test, the other one they do, P-I-S-A. Yeah. So they're doing in-school testing, mostly at a system level or a school level, um, at an OECD level, actually, in, in some cases as well. So they're kind of in that in-school testing space specifically. Yeah. They do have other operations as well, as you say. Um, yeah. And they're not that dissimilar, but they're, but they're also, you know, they're also different businesses. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, our final stock is a little uh, med tech. Uh, Race Oncology, uh, a pharmaceutical company, um, basically in uh, they've got a chemotherapy drug called uh, Bizantrine uh, and also another drug called Xantrine, which is um, basically um, uh, an obesity uh, drug. Um, Jordan wants a view on this, Scott, Race Oncology. Yeah, so look, I'll 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 leave with the headline. I I don't I don't feel comfortable recommending a business like Race that's losing money, uh, has no revenues, and is hoping to get commercial markets for potential drugs that might do some good for bit for people and for the bottom line. It's it's a yeah. really really speculative case because even more I think the Janison, although Mark may disagree, um, you're you're in a space where you're hoping you can bring some drugs to market, and we just all know that sometimes that works fantastically well, sometimes it's a dead loss. When you've only got one or two drugs. You kind of, I mean, that's a really, really, really concentrated bet, right? The big pharma companies have tens and tens and dozens and scores of drugs, and they know some will win, some will fail. That's what they do. And they kind of wait for these little guys to do it. Race sits in between. What I like about race is they're not at the super, super, super bleeding edge of this. They're not trying to come up with new ideas. In the case of the oncology drug, it's passed, I think, 40 phase two trials. Mm. So it's at, at the end of like almost ready to go. You know, the phase three trials are next, then it's approval. So that's, a by the way, that's a long time to come. This is this is a, this is a biotech, you know, VC cash box type type business. I like the fact it's doing that later stage stuff because it takes a lot of that early risk out, and they are probably paying more than you would to develop it yourself. But you know, you've got something you might be able to take through to approval and then eventually sale. And if they do, they'll do really well. Um, but I'd love to take a portfolio approach. I just think one or two drugs is nowhere near enough. I can't handicap those odds. Like really, honestly, if you're going to invest in this, you've got to ask yourself. Why do I think the drugs they've got now will be successful? How big will the market be? How much of it will they get? How long does the patent last? 
unless you've done those maths, you, you shouldn't be buying. And then even more yeah. than that, if you've done the maths, ask yourself, do I know more as a, as a biotechnology um, expert? Do I know more about the chance of that drug being approved than the rest of the market? Do I know more about the market size than the rest of the market? Where's my edge? And I don't think 99.9% of people just simply don't have enough edge in biotech, in my view, to be playing in this space. And even those that do have that edge, if they're scientists, if they're experts, that's different to market experts or just probability experts, right? If you're a great clinician, uh, you might yeah. know what the drug does. You might love the fact that it might do something. But can you justify the odds? Think about Certex back in the day or others. Yep. There's a CSL, there's, there's others, but I just don't think you can buy race. Okay. You speculate it, knock yourself out. Um, I, I can't recommend it as an investment for All those right. reasons. Okay, uh, Mark, we're running out of time, but I don't think you need much time on uh, on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with all that. In fact, what's interesting, I, I had a look at Clenuval, and, um, which yes. we have looked at, done a lot of work on, and this goes back to circle of competence, that whole idea which Charlie Munger talks about a lot of, you know, yep. invest where you can understand what's going on. And I totally agree with Scott. There's no way we can make any judgment. Even our Medico members and so on would all shrug and throw their hands up in the air on whether their acute myeloid leukemia drug that's now got um, uh, orphan drug uh, designation in the US, which, by the way, is a yep. good thing for them. Uh, but going from even going from that to actually ever get to a, a point where they're actually making revenue is probably the odds are way against it. Let's put it that way. So it's yeah. a speculation again. And if you look at Clinuval, that's a profitable business in the orphan drug area. So I yeah. just the, the reader looks at that. And even that, even though it's profitable and we have a history of success, we still find it too hard. Yeah, generally okay. doing uh, We covered uh, Clinuval in uh, on the call yesterday with Gaurav and Maitland oh. and. Uh, uh, they both had an accumulate on it for that very reason, Mark, that you were talking about, that it's it's a portfolio of uh, drugs that they've got in there. Um, Mark Morland from Team Invest, always great to catch up. Thank you for your time today. Likewise, Scott Phillips from uh, Motley Fool. Enjoy the rest Thanks, of the week. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Thanks. Let's just recap the uh, the final five stocks. AGL or no from both, same with City Chic. Seven West Media, a hold from Scott. Um, a no from Mark, uh, Janison, a hold from Scott, a no from Mark, and a no from both on uh, race oncology. They prefer uh, a stock like Clinaville. Uh, that's all we have time for for today. If uh, you want us to uh, look at any stocks that you're interested in, put them in an email to us um, at uh, the call at osbiz.com.au and we will stick it on our list and um, give us a bit of time to get through it because we've got a bit of a bank up there. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.